Before we begin, I, I thought we would actually take this moment just to honor um, a pastor in the city who passed away this past week, who's had uh, an inordinate amount of influence, not only here in our city, but globally, as well as on our church, as well as on, on my life. Uh, his name is Tim Keller. And you may or may not have heard, but uh, Tim actually passed away this past week. Um, and so my wife and I have been just a puddle of tears as we've remembered him and his legacy here um, for us. I first met Tim uh, back in 2001. Uh, he and Pete Scazzaro, who's my mentor, uh, we were driving up together, and I was seated next to Mike, who's Tim's son, who's now a pastor at Redeemer Lincoln Square. And from that moment on, Mike and I became quick friends, and uh, he's been one of my longest friends here in the city ever since. Uh, Tim, during that time, was so accessible and such a generous mentor in many ways, who shaped so much of my own thinking, my own spiritual formation. And so when we first started uh, Hope Church, first in Astoria and then in Roosevelt Island, Tim was such a resource for us. In fact, he spoke at different leadership gatherings that we hosted. Uh, when we first hosted our first service here as Hope Midtown, um, he came along with Kathy, his wife, along with a number of his friends, and they sat in the back just cheering us on. And it was such an honor to have him here. And so um, we are, like I said, we've been grieving quite a bit, um, just knowing that he's no longer with us. Uh, but in many ways, we hope that the legacy that we continue um, very much has the same heartbeat of what um, he was about, which was to make much of Jesus. And we are overjoyed that he is with Jesus now. Um, at the same time, we're so grieved um, by the reality that he's no longer here with us. I thought it was appropriate for us to give him honor um, because of all that he's meant not only to me and to us, but to our city uh, and to really the gospel movement in New York City. And so uh, I just wanted to make mention of him today. Some of you may or may not have heard of who he is or have heard of his work. And uh, I basically just copy all of his sermons. So there you go. So, uh, but uh, we are going to be continuing on in our message series in the book of Nehemiah. We've been exploring how Nehemiah is uh, this person who was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And he was really a Jewish person who was in exile with a number of Jews. And he had this longing in his heart to go and, and rebuild Jerusalem, trusting in the promises of God. Now, you got to understand kind of the, the predicament that he was coming from. He's a people that have known just oppression and difficulty and being in exile. Somehow he has the favor of God to go and rebuild the people of Jerusalem. Last week, uh, uh, Howe preached this great sermon on resilience and renewal, how oftentimes whenever you know, we aim to do anything great and, and for God or otherwise, there's always difficulties and hiccups along the way. And we talked about some of those hiccups, the regional governors around that time, when they hear rumors that the people have come back and have started to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, all of a sudden there's opposition, there's threats that are made against them. And we talked last week about this idea of how um, being able to pray and to, to find our resourcefulness in God himself, um, to have that resilience in the midst of renewal is really what, what's required of us. But not only um, are the difficulties for Nehemiah coming from those around them, like the other regional governors and the other people who are now threatening the work of rebuilding the wall, but all of a sudden, what we read in the story earlier was the challenge is actually now starting to come within. So if you can imagine the people, the Jewish people who have been collectively trying to rebuild the wall together, notice what happens in the story that is so stunning. Check this out. Look at what it says. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. So do you see what's happening? This is the people that had come and collectively they're on the same team rebuilding the wall. But this outcry comes within. 
Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So hunger starts to arise. These are people who don't have a whole lot. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Do you see what's going on? The people, the Jewish people, they're starting to realize that inequities start to exist amongst the people group. So as they've all been in this project together, all of a sudden now, there's people that are now exploiting others amongst the same Jewish people while they're trying to fend off all of these nation states around them. What in the world is going on? Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Uh, Let's go to the next slide. When I heard their outcry and these charges, Nehemiah himself, he starts to hear the complaints, the sorrowful longings of the people. uh, And he says, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Do you see what's happening? These gross inequalities that start to exist are being perpetuated by people that are exploiting others, enslaving them. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. I mean, I love the audacity of Nehemiah. He's able to call out these people right now. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, what you are doing is not right. right. (laughs) That has nothing to do with the sermon. Just thought it'd be fun to say. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Now look at what happens. Give, them, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. So he calls them out. He says, what you're doing is not right. And then he charges them now, the way that they've been exploiting others, he wants them to start paying it back. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. But because Nehemiah doesn't trust him, look at what happens. Then I summoned the priests uh, and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Nehemiah makes them take this oath. Now look at what happens. And at this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So do you see the scene here? Nehemiah, basically, it's, it's not only difficulty and conflict that's coming from outside, but it's also coming up and rising up within. 
because the Jewish people who, had, who are all on this collective mission together, all of a sudden there's people that are charging interest, people getting exploited. Their kids are now becoming enslaved within this same nation state that's emerging, that's here to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah gets wind of what's happening and he's able to say with such gumption and audacity, what you are doing is not right. In fact, it says he gets very angry. Now, here's the thing. I think most people, especially in religious context, we think of religious people like, religious people aren't supposed to be angry. They're supposed to be happy, and they're supposed to be joyful. They're never supposed to get angry at stuff. Moreover, God, God is not a God who gets angry. God is like a big version of Santa Claus who just comes in for like, just bring it in for a nice warm hug, right? Like, that's who God is like. I don't know where that image came from. That was just... Right? And that's what people might believe about this is who God is. But notice, Nehemiah, he actually does get angry. See, anger itself is not a sin, especially when it's concerning what you're angry about. Nehemiah gets angry at this moment because he's seeing these gross inequalities that are starting to emerge amongst the people. And as a result, it says he's very angry, enough that he would be able to point with great conviction and say, what you're doing is not Right. Now, to have that kind of disposition, I mean, could you imagine? There's a certain moral high ground that Nehemiah has that he's able to say to these people, what you're doing is not right and to get very angry. Now, I'd rather have a God who is not just some kind of impotent God who never gets involved when inequalities or injustices are taking place. But what's revealed to us in this moment is that the very heart of God, as seen in the life of Nehemiah, is someone who's actually willing to step in with boldness and conviction against injustice. Now, if that's the case, if it's the case that Nehemiah is called to live into this calling of justice, I think it presupposes that justice is really a thing. And the question that I want to ask is this. uh, How can we advocate for justice if truth is relative? I think in today's world, most of us, when it comes down, especially saturated in a place like New York, where so much of the emphasis is on the self. I get to define my own reality. I get to define what makes me happy, my own sense of identity and calling. And yet we live in this pluralistic world and all of us are kind of fumbling about trying to figure out what is the right way? What is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? Well, nothing is good and nothing is evil. All of us basically get to define that for ourselves. But do you see that justice, in fact, the word for justice, it presupposes that there is really, truly an absolute right or a wrong, a good and an evil. Because if anyone is able to take a moral high ground and say like, hey, what you're doing is not right, it really comes from a disposition that says there does exist this absolute truth, moral truth about goodness and evil. And for, for Nehemiah to step into this, to get very angry about it, and to actually say to other people, you, what you're doing is not right, it presupposes that there really is something called justice and injustice. Now, here's the thing. Here's what we believe as Christians. Now, you might not be a Christian here, and I realize as we talk about moral truth, where's the founding or the basis of our moral truth? Here's what Christians believe. Christians believe that justice, by virtue of the fallibility of human beings, in other words, by virtue of every single one of us as human beings, whatever background you come from, wherever you grew up, however much money you make, everyone here is a sinner. That's what Christians believe. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, you are a sinner. 
Turn to your other neighbor and say, so are you. That's right. Some of you said hello instead of that. I see that. Yes. <laughs> A little, some fighting words that we're starting with as you walked in. All of us are sinners. Moreover, here's the thing. None of us are God. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, you are not God. And turn to your other neighbor and say, you are not God. Either. <laughs> yes. That's right. We're all fallible human beings. Because we're all fallible human beings, and no matter where we go in the world, there are fallible human beings everywhere. Hint, hint. Now, if that's the case then, then who is the arbiter of what is truly just and what is unjust? Who's the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil? Now, as Christians, here's what we believe, that justice, by nature of believing that there's something called justice or injustice, that the only one who could be the arbiter of what is right and wrong, good and evil, is God. Because God is the only one that transcends time, space, and people. And if that's the case, then, there's a certain humility, right? Now, Christians nowadays, especially in our popular culture, have been so hypocritical. I should speak for myself here as a clergy person. So hypocritical in the way that we try to take a moral high ground, but are so filled with hypocrisy ourselves. Which requires, then, a certain kind of humility by which whenever we engage in discussions of rightness and wrongness, hopefully we as Christians have a humility in the way that we approach it, a humility that first acknowledges, I am a sinner, I don't have it all figured out, but approaching God through the scriptures as revealed through Jesus, being able to look at the life and the lens of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here, that's what we want you to do. We want you to investigate the person of Jesus, to find out why we find him so compelling and why the version of truth, justice, life, and love is really a compelling vision for your life and for mine. Now, if we can each do that, then we realize that that moral high ground, where does it come from? It comes, hopefully, humbly, I would submit, from a God of the universe who is outside and transcends human beings. Why? Because that's the definition of this absolute kind of truth, morality, etc. Now, check this out, right? Look at who Nehemiah hearkens to when he gives this 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 rebuke, really, to the people of the way that inequalities are being enacted amongst the people. Look at what he says. He says, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the what? In the fear of our God. See the basis by which Nehemiah points to the reason why we're supposed to be people that hopefully are ushering in a more just and equitable kind of life? It's because we fear God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile uh, enemies then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. I mean, isn't this stunning? The, Nehemiah gets his stance, his moral high ground, it comes humbly and yet courageously from believing in this God who transcends time, space, and people and is able to say with conviction, do we not fear God? Now, if you're not a Christian here, wherever you might get your moral compass, you can evaluate for yourself what is the basis that gives you the kind of moral 
uh, position to be able to say what is right, what is wrong, what is just, and what is unjust. And what happens whenever disagreements come in the public square? Now, again, as Christians, we're called to be both loving but yet have these convictions. Uh, Here's what's fascinating. Martin Luther King Jr., whether you're a Christian or you're not, you've probably heard of some of his teachings, especially around justice. Check out his letters from a Birmingham jail. Look at what he he says uh, about the early Christians and about his own work of justice and how he's calling out the church Uh, Look at what he says. He says, wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. This is what Christians were known for, for people who are constantly taking steps of faith and boldness to decry the injustices around them. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. What an orator. This is amazing. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. For f- from being, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church. Church is silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. What a call against the church. For years now, I've heard the word, wait, it rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as he understands the Christian faith, the basis by which he would be arguing for more just and equitable society, it came from a faith and from a history of the church where the people of God were people who constantly stood for the oppressed and the marginalized, for the poor and the broken. This is so different. This disposition is so different than the world that we live in, where so much of our world, when it comes to defining my own self, when it comes to defining my own agenda, whatever makes me happy, so much of the language that we hear today is about just pursuing my own calling, doing whatever I can to to beat out the competition in my workplace or in this city. And yet here's a disposition, a compelling disposition that has a vision for life and the future that is for an overarching justice. Now, this is why Martin King Jr. is so compelling and why his message resonates with every human being because, well, hopefully every human being, because all of us recognize at some point or another that yes, there is right and wrong, good and evil. Now, here's what the earliest uh, believers in God, the people of Israel, believe. Check this out. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Look at what it says. This is what God says. This is uh, words about God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. This is what the earliest Christians believed, that part of the fabric of God's character is that he is a just God, that he enacts Justice. Now, I would rather have this kind of God than a God who is wishy-washy, who's letting anything go in the world around us. Because each one of us at different times in our lives, we have experienced bad and evil and difficulty. 
Herman Bovink, uh, he wrote Reform Dogmatics, which is a, a significant tome. And um, he talks about how biblical justice can really be categorized into these two different categories. First is retributive justice. In other words, giving retribution towards those who have enacted evil against others, uh, but also restorative justice, uh, a way of uplifting the people who have been oppressed against. Now, notice what he writes. He wrote, God's remunerative, that was a little tough to say there, the <laughs> remunerative justice, in other words, the restorative justice, is far more prominent in scripture than his retributive justice. Perverting the justice due the poor, slaying the innocent and righteous, accepting bribes, oppressing the alien, the widow, and the orphan, raises them to a position of honor and well-being. Doing justice with an eye to the needy becomes an act of grace and mercy. God's justice is not like his anger opposed to his steadfast love, but is closely akin and synonymous with it. God's justice is simultaneously the manifestation of his grace. See, when Nehemiah is calling out the people who are enacting injustice, and he's redistributing the wealth back to the people who have been oppressed against, what he's essentially doing is he's restoring in a just way the heart of God. Because this is what God's heart is like. God has always been a God who brings about this kind of restorative justice. In fact, the call that he would have from his people, whether it's from the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, was to be a people who consistently pursue to do good. Check this out. Look at what it says. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. There it is, acting justly and loving mercy. And look at what James writes. James, who's the brother of Jesus. Just a little clue, like even Jesus' brother thought he was the son of God, which is pretty amazing and astounding. Look at what James writes. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do, and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. See, the earliest Christians, they all knew there was, yeah, this standard of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And if we don't step in to that calling, if we don't step in to that invitation, then we're actually sinning ourselves by not living into the more just and equitable ways that God wants for us and for all people. You know what's so fascinating is, is around the world, Christianity is actually growing in the global south. So I know that in the west, uh, you know, people are like, oh, yes, what's, we need to learn more from the global south. Well, what if I told you that the global south is where Christianity is, is growing like wildfire? And a lot of reasons is because in those areas, they have been areas in the global south that have been historically oppressed. Um, here are some examples. For instance, Gustavo Gutierrez, who's a Peruvian priest, he wrote a book called A Theology of Liberation. And it's amazing for him to reflect on the teachings of Jesus, to read the stories of Israel in Exodus, and then later the people of Israel in exile. And what he sees, this theme that constantly emerges in the scriptures, is a theme of liberation. That this is what God has come to do, to come and liberate his people. To stand on the side of the poor and the oppressed. The same is true in black, a lot of black pastors and theologians have written about liberation theology as well. One of the more popular names is James Cone, who wrote a book called God of the Oppressed. And what you see in these texts 
is that people who read the scriptures, again, coming from a place of difficulty and marginalization, when we read the scriptures of Jesus and who he is, we see that God is a God of restorative justice. And this is why the civil rights movement, the different movement for women's suffrage, so many of these movements for the oppressed have been birthed um, and the moral kind of underpinnings have been founded on this belief in Jesus and what he came to give and do, which was liberation for all. Which is why, really the call for us then is this, is that following Jesus means this. It means that we are a people who pursue justice. We're a people who believe that there is a right and a wrong. We stand on behalf of the poor and the marginalized. We will do what it takes to look outside of ourselves and to be a people of generosity and justice. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now, again, part of me would rather cower away and be like, no, I don't want to talk about these things or touch on these issues. And yet here Nehemiah is, he sees it. He sees the inequality happening in his own community and he's able to call it out. He's able to say, don't you fear God? God is the one who gives us this kind of belief because God is a just God. Now, see, this is beyond wokeism. This is beyond conservatism or liberalism. Really, we're talking about biblical justice here, that what emanates from who God is is that God is a just God, and he calls us to be a people who stand against injustice, who who wants us to be generous with the ways that we care about others. Like I mentioned, in a place like New York, this is such a dog-eat-dog kind of city. I mean, so much of this is basically, let's just exploit the city. Some of you have just moved here, and you're just like, I just graduated. I've got disposable income for the first time. I'm going to eat at all the best restaurants in the city in three years. Then I'm going to leave and move to New Jersey. You know, like, right? Like, that's, I mean, that's living the dream, isn't it? It's like, let's just, I'm going to meet someone, and then I want to move to the suburbs, maybe Connecticut. Maybe Queens, but we won't say Queens. We'll say LIC. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry for all of you from LIC. Just no shade. No shade. Guys, (laughs) I mean, the mentality, I mean, but isn't that the mentality? And if it's not your mentality, it's the mentality of the people you know, right? You came here, you're working in iBanking, and everyone else, it's the same trajectory. This, This hustle to try to make more money, to try to advance my career, to get to a place of comfort so that I can impress people, then impress someone that would fall in love with me that I would fall in love with too, and somehow then to take care of myself. And it's so easy to just live that kind of story. And here's the call of God. The call of God is like, no, 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 I want you to live for something bigger than yourself, to care about someone and other people more than yourself, to be a beacon of light for the poor and the marginalized, to care. Now put your money where your mouth is. And what you see in Nehemiah is he's willing to step in. Why? Does it come from, well, this is what social media is pressuring all of us to do. No, it comes from the moral backing of believing in a God who is just and calls us to pursue justice. You know, I think of the people here who have been involved in some of the different mercy and justice initiatives. I think of Kirpa, who um, really has a heart for 
um, against slavery. Um, and so as a result, she's been co connecting with the International Justice Mission, which helps to free um, different children who have been enslaved in various countries. In a couple of weeks, she's helping host a screening here because she cares and she wants to make a difference. I think about the different folks in this community who care uh, about justice and have done their best to serve other families in need, whether it's mentoring other young people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. I think of the Extending Hope initiatives that we've done to redistribute wealth towards organizations that are doing considerable work when it comes to mercy and justice. I want to celebrate the heart of actually doing something. Shane Claiborne, uh, like I mentioned, he, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he, he has this phrase where he says, becoming the answer to our prayers. When will we actually become the answer to our prayers? So often what we do is we talk a lot about justice. We'll post about justice. We'll post about how much we care about others. And yet when will we begin to offer more than prayers and actually start to become the answer to our prayers. I think about the health clinic that Dave has pioneered, and I think about the ways in which different people are, again, trying to help create and promote in our city a more just and equitable society. What it means to follow Jesus is to be a people who pursue justice. One of the things I love about Nehemiah, though, it's not, see, it's not the end of the story. I mean, check this out. Look what happens. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, right? So he's in this position of power and privilege. And look at what it says. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Do you see what's happening? These governors, they were already in positions of power. They were getting every perk that came with being governors, and they were exploiting other people. Their assistants also lorded over the people. But look at what Nehemiah says. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Look at what he says. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. You know, instead of having his table be a place that was private and it's not for, it's just for this exclusive privileged bunch. Instead, he widens the table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Here, Nehemiah is and when it comes to living his own life and being in a position of privilege and power, Instead of soaking it up for all it's worth, he actually leverages it in solidarity with those who don't have a lot. He shares the wealth of what he's been given. He's someone who walks in solidarity. Now, this is stunning 
Because most of the ways that the ancient believed about whether God was pleased with you was if you are in a position of power and privilege, if you have money and power and fame, God loves you and he has ordained this for you. So soak it up. (laughs) And yet here's what Nehemiah does. Because he believes, not in a God like that, but a, a God who is just and merciful, It's because of that that Nehemiah, any privilege that he's given, he makes a move to leverage his privilege for the good of others, of his people, that he's working with to build the wall. I love this. And look at where his moral high ground comes from. Again, out of reverence for God. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. It's unbelievable how Nehemiah, with a heart that is chasing after God, could be so committed towards justice and solidarity. To be a person who, though he is in a position of power and privilege, he leverages it to be a bridge-building person of solidarity. Now, see, this is what the Christian story has always been about. And now, here's the thing. What you're going to find out in the book of Nehemiah, just hint, hint, in the chapters to come, the people, more conflict comes, there's more difficulty. In fact, the story doesn't even end on this super-duper positive note, but please come back next week. Um, But what we find is that, see, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, as much as he does to try to be this bridge-building kind of agent, all he is is a foreshadowing of one to come. Because the Christian story would always be a story that's not about these heroes that somehow had this moral high ground. It's a story of the God of the universe who, to fallen, broken human beings, which all of us, we all admitted we were, or maybe if you didn't admit it, you actually pointed others out and everyone should have pointed to everyone, so everyone here is commonly agreed we're all sinners. But the story of the Christian faith is that in the midst of our brokenness, our woundedness, our alienation, our being oppressed or marginalized or lonely, if you've ever in your life experienced what it looks like to be someone who's forgotten or alone or misunderstood, or treated in an unjust manner? The God of the universe sends Jesus, his son, to lay down his own privilege, to come from heaven and earth, to take on flesh, so that you might know that God is with you in the most difficult valleys, the harshest conditions, the ways in perhaps you yourself may have felt oppressed or in a a difficult circumstance. I mean, this is the miracle of the story of God. Why is it that in the global south, Christianity is like wildfire? It's because anyone who has felt the pangs of difficulty, of oppression, they see the story of Jesus, a God who stands in solidarity with hurting people, and sends his son into the world to live and to die on our behalf and take his privilege as the son of God, set it aside, 
and then welcome us to a table whereby we might become sons and daughters of the God of heaven and earth. See, that's the story of Jesus. That's the story of God. Miroslav Volf, who is a, uh, he's a scholar at Yale, um, he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And in this book, he himself, he was writing this as a Croatian theologian uh, in the midst of the Yugoslav wars that were happening and the ethnic cleansing and the battles that was happening uh, in the former Yugoslavia. So you can imagine, like, he's writing his theological reflections on the real bloodshed and wartime crimes that are happening in the Yugoslav wars. And he writes this book about a vision for what a Christian vision of reconciliation and love might look like. The world around us and the perpetual cycle that we find ourselves in, especially in war, is a cycle of exclusion, of people being apart from each other, of people being alienated from one another, of people taking preemptive attacks on one another. And he talks about what would it take to actually move from being a people at odds and in animosity with one another, especially such stark disagreements that would lead to war and bloodshed that could actually lead to embrace. And he points to the story of Jesus. Now, notice what he writes about Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, Jesus' kind of option for nonviolence had nothing to do with the self-abnegation in which I completely placed myself at the disposal of others to do with me as they please. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, like, Jesus' way or manner of sacrifice. It's not like, oh, I'm such a loser. Just walk all over me right now. This is what Christians are supposed to do. Sorry, that was my interpretation of that, right? So, like, it's not this self-hating kind of thing. Look at what he writes. He says, it had much to do with the kind of self-assertion in which I refuse to be ensnared in the dumb redoubling of my enemy's violent gestures and be reshaped into their mirror image. In other words, here's what Jesus does. He doesn't simply just resign himself to being a, a pushover. Instead, he makes the willful choice to take a position of self-sacrificing love. And he does it. Why? So that anyone who has ever felt alienated, oppressed in a circumstance that felt beyond them, that they might know that the God of the universe is actually with you in this, is actually for you, actually makes the deliberate choice to die for you to love you so that you and I might know that we're not alone, but there's a savior in heaven who actually stands in solidarity with you, with me, today, right now.